Hello, my name is Hal Crawford. Today on Crawford Media, we jump into the world of podcasting, or as today's guests would call it, talk. Ben Watts is Spotify's head of studios for Australia and New Zealand. A couple of years ago, Spotify, the dominant music streaming platform, took on podcasting with a billion dollar investment, buying up popular podcasts and establishing itself as a massive player overnight. Spotify is now the biggest podcast platform in Australia, according to the 2022 Digital News Report, and probably throughout the world. No one's quite sure because neither Apple nor Spotify break out podcast subscriber numbers. For podcasters, that makes Spotify the biggest deal in town. And my old colleague Ben is right there at the heart of the machine, working out what makes people listen. Ben, it is wonderful to be talking to you again after all these years. Congratulations on your gig at Spotify. Thanks, mate. Yeah, it's nice to reconnect with you as well. It's been a little while. I was actually going to talk about your career journey last, but why don't we flip that on its head so that we can orientate people. Tell us about, you and I worked together at 9MSN. I always remembered that prior to that, you had worked at Big Brother. That was something that stuck in my head for some reason. Tell me about... Tell me about that and where you've come from and where you're going. Big Brother was like phase two of my career. So phase one was I always wanted to be a music journalist, completely obsessed with music as a kid. And I was lucky enough to start writing for Rolling Stone when I was still at uni and got a few gigs there. I don't know if you've seen them, they're the almost famous. It was like that, except it was like new metal, late 90s. So I was... in. <laughs> A lot of bands I didn't like. I got to interview Fred Durst, who is from Limp Bizkit, who has had a weird renaissance with the Woodstock 99 documentary out at the moment. But I got to be a music journalist in my early 20s, which was incredible. And all I ever wanted to do. And then I got to about 23. And I, at that point, started working in the interwebs with Rolling Stone. So I went there to be their first web editor, not knowing what a web editor was, but that's all right. No one else really knew either. I did that for a while. And then the dot-com, the first dot-com crash happened and I lost my job and went overseas. And when I came back, I did a little bit of music stuff, but then this opportunity came up to go and work on Big Brother. And that was the second season of that at the time. Packed my bags, went to Queensland and worked in a theme park. <laughs> And I did that for five or six years and I loved it. And that was really, for me, falling in love with internet media because I, having worked in magazines where you would produce an issue and then maybe six weeks later, you would get tiniest little bit of data around how that magazine performed. And mostly that was dependent on who was on the cover. I was suddenly in this world where every little signal and everything that happened, you were getting live data. And I just fell in love with that. I think the thing I loved the most about Big Brother, there's a lot of things I loved about it, but you just felt completely at the center of, and of mainstream culture. It was, everyone was talking about it. You were, whenever you see your friends, they'd want to talk about that. I just fell in love with the fact that it was this thing that everyone was a bit fascinated about. And a lot of people said that they weren't, but they'd say, I remember the classic conversation you'd have with someone and they'd be like, I don't like that thing you're working on. And then they'd go into great detail about why they didn't like it in each person and be like, but you're clearly watching it. it like, oh, maybe a couple of times. I recall that vividly, actually. I also was not a big brother person. And yet I knew the characters and I had an opinion on them. And 
when you think about now and the sort of lack of focal point of popular culture, I mean, there are focal points, but I don't think it's quite the same. Do you, would you agree? I totally agree with that. It's fascinating because I think about that as well. I think about what I do now. I still hunger for those zeitgeist moments, for want of a better term, that where everyone feels like the media are all converging on one event. And that happens occasionally, but it it's usually a it's Shane Warne dying or the Queen dying. It's not something that's constructed. And I feel a bit sad about that. It's fascinating because it happens in different ways. It just happens in a much more fragmented way now. We met at 9MSN and that also was a kind of a very much a gatekeeper style situation, wasn't it? Completely. I, I, and you said that and I was just thinking the same thing. I was thinking and then I went to 9MSN and that was so fascinating. That homepage was just so popular and everyone was on that one page. And I still remember those polls that you and the news team ran and how extraordinary amount of people we had voting on a poll every day. We don't have that center of gravity that we did. No. Which is great. And it's for that control being decentralized is amazing as well. Having seen that transition in the last 20 years is pretty incredible because I, a lot of times I think that media has changed a lot less than I thought it would. And other times I'm gobsmacked. So we had literally millions of Australians every day on that page. And for many people, that was the beginning of the internet. That is not a world that you can even conceive of now. I think it's interesting because I think that one of the things I think about that 9MSN period was that we, I was running entertainment there. And so we had the fix, which was the essentially all entertainment, but the center of that was celebrity. And that was in the Paris Hilton kind of Paris Hilton, Perez Hilton era of celebrity where celebrity had become very big on the internet, but the celebrities hadn't taken over their own channels. It was still very much with the blogs and with the photographers at that point. Yeah. And that's in many ways a forgotten history because Perez Hilton, for example, was massive. I think you'd call him a celebrity blogger now. I haven't heard his name spoken uh, until you just said it. Where did you head after 9MSN, Ben? I went to the ABC, mate. This sounds like a slightly macabre story, but my wonderful mother passed away just after I left 9MSN. I'd taken some time off while she was sick and she got actually got very sick and I had started interviewing for a role at the ABC and my sisters had said, you shouldn't go and do that interview. They'll be fine. They can wait. And my mum on her deathbed was like, no, you go and do that. <laughs> you go and do that interview. She was always the one that motivated me in my career and she was like, it's time you worked somewhere Credible. She was sick of having to feel slightly <laughs> ashamed of what her son did. She'd always been very supportive of my career, but it was funny that was the truth came out in her final days that she was quite excited by the idea of me working at the ABC because that had been, you know, a mainstay of her life and and also a mainstay of mine. Like I, I, I think it it genuinely was something where I'd always loved the ABC. I'd loved Triple J particularly. It had a, a massive impact on me as a late teen. And I just loved the idea of going and working there. And so I went there and I first worked on a project called ABC Open, which is forgotten now, but that was a project that I think was funded by the Rudd government to put multimedia producers in all of the radio, all the ABC radio stations around the country and have them teach people to create their own content. So in a lot of ways, it was way ahead of its time. And 
I went and worked on that project, was an EP on that and loved it, but quickly moved across into the radio division and ended up taking up a management role. And I did a few things there, but a couple of them stood out was I started running the ABC audio app, which is now ABC radio listen app. And I also was really involved in podcasting and became pretty fascinated with it. I think it was around the same time that I, at a personal level, fell in love with podcasting. Mark Maron's WTS podcast was the first one that I loved. I think everyone who loves podcasting has that first podcast that that was the moment for them. A lot of people, for a lot of people, it was serial. Mm. For me, it was Mark Maron. The intimacy of that is what I loved. And I loved the intimacy and I loved the fact that I could be gardening or I could be going for a run or I could be doing whatever the hell I wanted and I could have this long-form conversation playing in my head. Just on that, it is remarkably liberating when you have worked in what is more or less traditional media to sit down, for example, Sam Harris is a, a podcaster I really like, and yeah. he runs interviews two hours plus. You cannot do this in broadcasting land. Yeah, and it's fascinating. Joe Rogan's obviously another in- incredible example of that, where the conversation went as long as it was interesting for the person running it. It's so common that I get asked, how long should this podcast be? And there's no answer. It really goes down to how long does it stay interesting? How long is an episode? And that's also pretty subjective to work out as well. But I think that is one of the one of the great things about podcasting is that potential infinite length. And it's also one of the biggest disadvantages because you can also oversay your welcome. Now we got sidetracked. You went to the ABC, you got involved in podcasting, and then you transitioned to Apple. Were you a podcasting guy at Apple? No. So the Apple thing was a big left turn. Was loving the ABC, having a good time there, had no real intention of leaving. And then I got an opportunity to, offered an opportunity to go to Apple and work on Apple Music. So as editorial lead for Apple Music, which had probably launched six months before. This is 2016. And that was just an opportunity I couldn't turn down. So I'm More than anything, I'm a music guy. At a personal level, I love music. And my career has been in and out of music over the years. But to go back to music at that point, when streaming was really happening um, and really taking off, fascinated me. So I took up that gig and I was at Apple for four years and I had a great time there. I loved it. And I was very much working on the music side, looking at how curating playlists and working with artists and really looking at how you create the best music experiences for different audiences. And I guess there's a lot of jobs to be done logic in that of creating playlists when people are exercising, when they're chilling out, when they want to party, an infinite amount of scenarios where they can listen to music. And I always love that thing of the challenge of getting people who aren't heavily engaged in something. That's the thing I love doing in it. And And common common to many people who worked at 9MSN, you become obsessed with the numbers as well, don't you? Yeah, I think I am, but I'm less so than I used to be. And I'm not even sure why. L- um, less of a desperado. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I know that thing. Actually, I've, a couple of members on my team had admitted that there was something they'd put live that day, something, a big project for us. And they were looking at the numbers that night while they were in a pub on their phone. And I was like, oh, don't worry, I've been there. And I'm happy that you're doing that. I'm not happy that you're working at 10 o'clock at night, but I, I love that you're feeling engaged enough with your work that you just want to see how many people are engaging with that thing. And I love that bit. Then you have gone 
made a transition back to podcasting effectively. Is that right? Or is there more to your Spotify role than podcasting? The role came up at Spotify to lead, I guess, the strategy and the team around podcasting. And Spotify had been getting into podcasting in a big way for the year or so before that. And I think the thing that I found looking from the sidelines at what Spotify were doing and being at Apple, but not working directly in working in music rather than podcasting there. I was really interested in this idea of one app doing music and doing podcasting, or as we would look at it now, doing music and doing talk. Oh, is that, that how you refer to it internally or just in your brain? No, more and more we use the word talk. And that would be because it podcasting as a term or a format is limiting. Really the way we structure this as a music team and there's more and more a talk team. And for example, we've just launched audiobooks in the US and that will come to Australia in the coming months. And so that will sit within the talk area because it's people talking rather than singing. So that's the way we categorize it, I guess, which to me has always made sense. But I loved this idea of one app having both of those things, I think because I've worked in music and I've worked in podcasting. So putting the two together was the thing that fascinated me and made me make that jump across to Spotify. To me, podcasting, the word's been around for decades now and it always seemed a bit limited. Yeah. And even now, there's a bit of research to suggest that it's a term, look, I think it's done pretty well as a term in one sense, but I think it can, for some people, be limiting. They think that it can mean it's a bit techie or it can mean, oh, that's a really long thing and I don't have time for that. It can also mean, oh, that's for smart people or people that want to be a bit more learned rather than mainstream. What I'm always fascinated about or focused on in my role now is trying to get people who haven't tried podcasting to give it a go. Because we know that once someone finds that, you know, that one podcast, it's pretty quick that they're listening to three or four and they've had that gateway drug for one of a better term that then gets them into it. But that can be a hard hoop to jump through. My comment here would be that radio has always been one of the most popular and democratic kind of mediums. It, you certainly wouldn't say radio is highfalutin. What are the podcasts that are going to get people into podcasting? Just one clarification. I wouldn't say it's necessarily highfalutin. It's just more, it's for someone else. The discoverability issue has always been there with podcasting and it's one that we're working on. It's tended to be a more niche platform rather than broadcast or mainstream. The reality has been in the past, you had to be the kind of person who got a podcasting app, went to the trouble of finding out where the feed was, downloaded it, found a way of listening to it that suited you. It hasn't been as easy as getting in your car and turning on the radio. Absolutely. And that's one of the things just making it easier for people. One of the things, and you, to go back to your question is, how do you do that? How do you make it more accessible to people? I think it's particularly to put talent up front, to put people they know up front and to make it easy. I guess the process now is easier. If you're on an, if you're on an audio app, you can click and you can listen. It, for me, one of the things I do obsess about in what we do is that the cover art for a podcast is so important. You still got to get them to click on that to then listen. So they've got to they've got to have a the, the way podcasts are pretty much set up now. You've got to have a visual cue before you have an audio one. So getting that art right and having that art represent that show 
in the truest form is really important so that I click on that and I go, oh, I like this person, I know this person, and then the actual audio product that I get needs to be in sync with what I saw in those visuals. And another thing we obsess over, particularly with new podcasts, is the first minute. It's got to be interesting. (laughs) And we need to be really brutal about that. And now if that's about getting someone to listen for the first time, so it's got to be you're always thinking that first listener, the first time they listen, one of the things a podcast can do is create their own universe. And if I the first episode I listen to is episode 50 and there's lots of in-house references and in-jokes and things and I don't feel like I'm at home, I'm just going to go. So one of the things we're often talking to our podcast is about is getting that balance between, you know, nurturing your community but also for also being aware that every episode you're going to have people that have never listened to you before. Now, Ben, we talked about the sort of welter of media possibilities out there and the fragmentation of people's attention and there being no sort of single point where it all comes together. Personally, I know there are so many great podcasts out there, like the one you recommended earlier, that I just don't have time to listen to. How do we deal with the with this cornucopia of, of content? Look, that's the fascinating one for me. And I think if there's one thing that we're at the tip of the iceberg on at Spotify with, with podcasting is discoverability. I think that we've got a long way to go there. I think we've made some great inroads, but we're, we've got a long way to go. I think how you've said that point at which you're like, I don't have time for this. And I think we all do that. But the thing is, suddenly if you engage with a podcast and you love it, you find the time. And then you've got the thing where one of the unique things about other formats do this, but I think podcasters is the most beautiful at this one where it goes with you. So you can do other things. You can have a functional life. You don't hear people say, I went, I, I went down a two-hour rabbit hole of podcasting in the way that you might see YouTube or other formats. We've all done that. But with podcasting, you don't think of it that way because generally you're doing other things while you're listening to that two and a half hour episode. That, that is such a great point. And it actually distinguishes itself from those experiences that you might regret afterwards. I don't think I've ever felt that way about listening to audio. No. And I think there's also that one of the things that I love is that people will often talk about it. They use different terms for it, but it can edu- it can educate you. It, it's great to be doing stuff. And then a lot of things I didn't live in school and all, there was that world of very pop educational podcasts that just teach you stuff. People love that and they love that they can be learning whilst they're doing other stuff. I am, in, as a person who sits in front of a microphone from time to time and speaks, I'm in awe of some of the talent out there. These people who can just be so incredibly fluent. That's absolutely true. We've just done a program called Make Waves, which took a group of mostly TikTokers and gave them six weeks of training in podcasting. And it was really interesting seeing some of those people just so naturally take to long form speaking by themselves. Um, Some of them did, some of them didn't, but you can really quite quickly pick the people that can do that. And it's an extraordinary skill. It is, yeah. I have had a lot of experience in picking that talent in traditional radio and television environments. And it is something that some people have and others don't. Yeah. I, another example of that, Alexis Fernandez, who is a an Australian podcaster who's doing really well around the world. 
Um, she's incredible in that ability to talk for 30, 40 minutes about anything and just be compelling. And I think there are examples of people that do that really well. Radio never really facilitated that. Actually, I guess someone like Philip Adams, late night on the ABC might have, but generally it was more of a format that had different components. Podcasting can be that one. And it can also be really boring if people don't do that well. It goes both ways. Now, the books, it's interesting. A lot of people are consuming books these days through audio formats. And I know this because I do it. I read a lot, but I also listen to a lot. Do you feel, though, that it, because you're not reading it, do you feel somehow like you're cheating? I can take in information quicker by reading than I can by listening to an audiobook. So that is one distinct difference for me. I find it probably more pleasurable to listen to a good reader of an audiobook. So there's a sort of a balance there between information and pleasure. See, I move the opposite. I'm a naturally slow reader. So listening, I find easier. I can sometimes find looking at the words a little bit more, particularly if it's novel, a little bit more profound to actually see it written. There's something in that. But generally, I just find it more enjoyable to hear it. Yeah. Now, look, where are we heading with this? Do you think that we're heading to a place where there is considerably less books read and more listened to? I think, again, we talked about those sort of media trends that we'd look 20 years ago and go, will this still exist? I think the publishing industry from a, a book, a physical book point of view, is doing just fine. I just think that people have different choices. It's just a choice thing. I don't know. I don't think it matters. I just don't think it matters. And I don't think it's suddenly that people will only hear things and just give up words. I don't think that'll happen. We don't find any sensory format goes away. It just evolves a bit. Yeah, that's true. It's all layered. Like radio hasn't gone away and certainly doesn't seem like it's going away anytime soon. One of the things that we're really fascinated in is the way that we blend music and talk in the future. Experiences that on Spotify, that's something we're looking at. We have a product called Daily Drive, which has been around for a couple of years and it does really well which has songs and then short form podcasts, whether it be news updates, whether it be short form documentaries interplaying with music, we will do more products like that uh, Mm. in the future. Mm. So I think you'll see the blending of those two things from an audio point of view. Do audio books get to a different market than the book readers? I don't actually know that because we haven't, we haven't launched it in Australia yet. We just don't have that experience yet. I would like to think that they can. My challenge in that coming into our market would be, okay, how do we get those books in front of people that wouldn't read them but would listen to them? There's absolutely, that's where the potential lies for me. Mm, mm. Get, in the same way that for me, podcasting and Spotify was about getting people who weren't listening to podcasts, listening to podcasts, for me, it would be, how do you get someone to engage in a great novel through listening to it and experiencing that, that wouldn't have picked up and read a book because they would have gone, oh, that's not for me. Now, coming back full circle to you. So you've had this thread of music that runs through your life and you've ever since your your Rolling Stone days you've loved music and I certainly was aware of that when we worked together 
You've mentioned that music is going to become a more important part of your work at Spotify. Tell me, is that where you're going to end up or where are you going? I've never been very good at having the five-year plan, mate. At the moment, I am I'm personally fascinated with that combination of music and podcasting. I love that. That's one of the reasons why I'm at Spotify because I think it is a platform trying to blend the two together. That's something that's going to fascinate me for the next couple of years. That combination that you've described of talk interspersed with the music sounds a lot like traditional a, a traditional radio format. How does it differ from that? Yeah, I mean, in some ways you'd say it is, but I don't think we're thinking about it in that way. We're thinking about it from the point of view of how do you just make that best experience for people if they're on Spotify what do they want to listen to next? And that might be a song or that might be a podcast or that might be an audio book and creating the abilities for us to anticipate what they will want next. So what that looks like, if you compare it to say radio, I guess is it's a much more personalized experience. We would have the ability to anticipate the music you might like Mm. and the book content that you might like Mm. in a more personalized way. That would be the simplest way I think you also have the ability to interact with that and say, no, I'm not interested in that right now. On the other hand, personalization does have that downside of a feeling that you're in a vacuum. You're in a you're in a room with one person yourself. Yeah. And I love, personally, I love the experience of shared media. I love watching TV with other people. I love knowing that other people are reading the same news articles that I'm reading and you can lose that. Yeah, yeah that's true. Oh, that's true, but I think when personalization is done really well, you aren't thinking of that because you'll just, oh, this is what I want. Yeah, it, and but that's and it can be having worked in music curation personalization. I think, yeah, it absolutely can do that. You can it can get into a kind of diminishing product where you're getting it feels like you're getting served a, a smaller and smaller range. And discoverability is something that we work on across music and talk is like making sure that we're still recommending that magic thing that no one thought that someone thought they would like but mm. being able to bring that in just one final personal question ben you've worked in pretty high roles for some international tech companies you've never moved away from australia is that something that you decided a long time ago no it's just never happened if the right opportunity came up i would jump on a plane and do that always been motivated more by the opportunity rather than the location. I think that's the way I look at that. I've never really thought about that one. I'd be open to it. Yeah. Noted. Ben, I'm glad you've stuck around in Australia and that you're still here and that, that we had this conversation. It is so great to have caught up again. Yes, mate. I'm glad you're back in Australia. If you listen carefully to that last little bit of audio, you will hear Crawford Media's office hound, Beanie, making his contribution to the conversation. One of the benefits of our open policy here at CM. I apologize that the audio in general of this conversation was a little ropey. The Magic Studio sound button in my wonderful editing program Descript cannot fix all things all the time. And no, I am not sponsored by Descript. Thanks to Ben for taking the time to catch up and thank you for listening. Kevin McLeod wrote my theme tune and my name is Hal Crawford. Bye for now.